Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Excellent. Good morning. I'm delighted to talk to you today. Likewise. Thank you so much. I'm just going to ask your permission, since the world has like completely changed, yeah. since we even set this up, um, I definitely want to talk to you about your work, but I just kind of thought it might be appropriate to, could we start out just in the moment <laughs> and talk about, you're at a big university, uh, or I guess a medium university, you've got students, they've been sent home you're doing research, you're trying to patch this together the way you can, you might have things to say about the virus itself. Do you mind if we just start out talking about that after um, we introduce you? Sure, I, I don't mind, although I'll warn you in advance, I don't have anything profound to say about it. Um, I okay, don't have any fine. insight, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge of it. I'm not a virologist. Um, I can tell you how my lab and myself are handling it, but uh, I don't have anything really deep to add to this, unfortunately. Okay, that's great. Then we won't, I won't try to go into that. But yeah, you know, it's, this is on everybody's mind. So here we go. Uh, this is Perry Marshall, and I am delighted to be here with Michael Levin. He is, well, I mentioned him to my friend Dennis Noble, and he said, oh, he's a brilliant electrophysiologist. I think that is the title that he gave to you. So I don't know if that's your official title, but that's what a physiologist had to say. I love that Dennis. I'm, I'm not an electrophysiologist, but I love Dennis, and we can certainly, uh, we can certainly talk about electrophysiology. <laughs> and, well, the way I got introduced to Michael was uh, one of my very long-term clients and also volunteers on the Evolution 2.0 project, uh, Paul Boschman, who is a chemist. Mm -hmm. I believe he used to work for DuPont. Michael, he got a hold of your videos, and he's like, dude, like, this is, like, really good stuff. Perry, you got to watch this. And so he sends me this video, and I'm a person who probably prefers to read rather than watch a video, but, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But I'm watching this presentation, and he's, Michael's cutting planarian worms in half and getting them to grow two heads, and Michael is, he's implanting tumors in creatures, and watching how they work and changing electric fields and making the tumors go away. And he's finding out that you can put an eye on the spinal cord of a embryo and the eye can actually see, and they don't even have to tell the thing how to rewire the, the nervous system. And it's, it's just amazing things. And Michael, one of the things that, that really stood out was the number of times that you said things like, we have no idea how this works, but it happens. We have no idea how this works, but it happens. We have no model for this, but it happens. And, and my take was, okay, this is a guy who, scientifically speaking, dances on the wing of the airplane where most people are trying to be safe inside. And I love that because it's like, I occasionally run into articles and authors where they make it sound like we've got everything figured out. I don't think we've got 1% of it figured out. Bingo. Do we even have 0.1% of it figured out? Like there are vast regions of dark matter in science that we just have yes. no clue. And there's a humility in that. And Michael, that is what I liked the most about your work. And I watched this video twice. I watched it again last night. It's like, okay, I think I'm starting to get some of this. Most of it's way outside of my familiarity, but okay, I get what you're saying. Wow. So I guess that's the intro. That's who, yeah. and uh, Tufts University near Boston. So Michael, let's just start with kind of the elephant in the room. You're at a big university and big universities have to send all the students home and the world is in this crazy 
virus phase. So <clears throat> you've got to get out of bed every morning. You still got to do research. You've still got to get your research teams. Just give me a snapshot of like, how are you managing all of this and what's going on? Yeah, um, well, I, I, I think first, um, um, what I'd like to, I'd like to just briefly address the thing you just said about um, the areas of ignorance and so on. I think this is really profound. And I want to say two quick things about that just right off the bat. When I point out in my, in my talks that there are lots of things that we don't know how they work, the point is not that we seek to collect uh, sort of weird phenomena and leave them at that, right? So that's clearly we would like to understand how things work. And in fact, we've reached, I think, and hopefully we'll talk about that today, some really important uh, uh, new discoveries about how all this stuff happens. At the same time, I think it's very important to keep ourselves and our students honest as scientists about what we do and do not know. And in fact, identifying these areas of ignorance is really critical for progress in the future. I mean, just as you said, if you read some of these reviews or, or, or especially textbooks, you get this feeling that, hey, we're doing pretty well and there's just some stuff to clean up. But overall, you know, we, we've got this under control. And I think that's profoundly wrong. I think you're much closer to this uh, 1% of figure as far as what do we actually understand. And I think it's really important, especially for people outside the field, because there's a lot of, I mean, I speak to a lot of different audiences, you know, computer scientists, roboticists, uh, you know, and they have a feeling that biology has all these things explained. And they really don't often know where the deep questions are for, even within biology, within different fields, we've, you know, people kind of have this assumption that stuff is, is well handled. And so I really like, uh, you know, part of my job is to poke at these places where actually things are not nearly as clear as everyone thinks that they are. So. So I like that a lot. Um, use the phrase dark matter. This, it's quite interesting when uh, um, the late Paul Allen in 2016, when he um, created our Allen Discovery Center around our work at Tufts, he uh, very explicitly used this phrase. He called it uh, to explore the dark matter of biology. So he very specifically wanted to fund a center that was going to map out areas where we don't even know what all the right questions are yet. And he was very conscious about going after places where clearly there's something important there, but we don't even know what it is yet. And so, so I think we are are looking at some really fascinating areas in the dark matter of biology. This is now, of course, more challenging now because of all this, uh, the, the quarantines and, and being shut out of our labs. Um, at the moment, our situation is simply that all experiments are on hold. We do, of course, have uh, ant colonies and flatworm colonies and, and frog habitats, and all of these things are being maintained by uh, some of our um, intrepid people in the lab who still have to go in and make sure that the animals are, are doing well and so on. But the rest of us are at home, and we are basically, I mean, we coordinate all the time. I, I think I'm busier than I ever have been uh, during these weeks as far as, you know, checking in with everyone. We are writing, uh, my coders are coding, uh, the computational people are making models and analyzing them. We are writing up uh, manuscripts for tons of stuff that we have open, uh, you know, that was in progress basically when all this happened. You know, we we're sitting on, I don't know, probably 20 different manuscripts from the stuff that was going on when we all got um, told to go home. So for now, that's it. It's, uh, you know, luckily a good chunk of my lab is computational and theoretical. And so there are people that, are, that can still do a lot of work on the, in silico, so to speak, and every else's writing well so how are you received because usually people that are telling us what we don't know are kind of black sheep like hey you know we had this really wonderful party going on and you had to come in here and fart in it like do you get pushback like how is politically and socially how does it work for you yeah, I've noticed a number of really interesting phenomena. Um, one thing I'll say that I've noticed is that computer scientists and engineers tend to be really very, very open with this kind of stuff. So just as an example, um, a couple of years ago, I was at the uh, Neuro IPS meeting in Montreal, and it's, you know, something like 6,000 uh, machine learning folks, and pretty much everybody in the room is doing, you know, th variants of deep learning, and everybody's uh, working on how to store uh, memories in very precisely tuned synaptic connections of these deep networks, right? And so I gave a talk where the first 10 minutes of the talk was going over this example of, well, I went over two examples. The first is the butterfly uh, example where you take a caterpillar 
and you train the caterpillar for a particular memory, and then the caterpillar um, metamorphoses into a butterfly. And during this process, it has to completely rebuild its brain. I mean, the brain is basically taken apart. Many of the cells die. Most of the cells lose their connections because you're going from a soft-bodied robot that has to crawl and chew plants to a hard-bodied creature that's going to fly and drink nectar. So the whole brain Mm. is just totally redone. And guess what? The butterfly still remembers the original information. Now, what is this telling you? If you're somebody who sunk, uh, you know, you're, you're Google or Microsoft who sunk all this money into deep learning, you're now finding out that, hey, there's a biological medium out there that can, where the memory remains, even though all of the connections get torn to shreds. So it's not in the synapses. So where is it, right? And so but what was amazing is that from, and, and then I talked about our planaria work, where, heck, you can cut off the brain entirely, and then they regenerate a brand new brain, and the memories come back. And so that audience was incredibly welcoming. I mean, my phone blew up at that point. Uh, it, it was, it was, people were extremely um, interested in it because, and it was a risk. I didn't know how people would take it. I mean, that, as you said, that's, you know, that's a party that everybody's kind of very, um, uh, very happy to be at. I didn't know how that would go, but people were fascinated. And I think it's because they're engineers. It's because they don't have as much preconception about how things are supposed to work as much as they're interested in how things could work better. So everybody was pretty excited about it. That is definitely not always how uh, my reception goes. Uh, Sometimes people are really freaked out by some of this stuff. Um, What's interesting is that I find, so I give this talk to lots of audiences, you know, regenerative medicine folks, cancer biology, developmental genetics, um, all over the place. And I can always tell what kind of department I'm in based on which part of my talk makes people mad. And what's interesting is that it's always a different part. Things you can say in a molecular, in a neuroscience department are, that are extremely obvious, you say the same thing in a molecular genetics crowd and people throw tomatoes. And it's not, be, right, because we have these amazing silos where people start, get used to thinking about things in a particular way. And then anything that goes against that becomes really disturbing to them. And so, and again, there are things that, um, that you could say to a regenerative medicine crowd, that's totally fine. But the same thing in a traditional cancer biology meeting is a big problem. And these kinds of things are all over the place. So I, at this point, am totally fine with that. I like a good mix of uh, making, uh, sort of making people intellectually uncomfortable with um, exciting them about the possibilities. So there are all sorts of aspects of my message that don't sit well with uh, particular uh, sort of paradigms. And then there are other aspects that people are very excited about because they point to a way of making progress in areas that are going to be otherwise very hard to deal with. Well, Richard Feynman said something to the effect of that which I cannot build, I do not understand. Yep. And... I think that the gold standard for scientific theories is engineering. And and I I need to explain what I do and don't mean by that. I don't mean that just because it works means your theory is right. But what I do mean is if it doesn't work, your theory is wrong. (laughs) And I went down the rabbit hole 15 years ago in evolutionary biology as an electrical engineer. And I start reading evolution books and papers and I'm going, most of what they're singing makes no sense. I could never build a computer software program with random mutation and natural selection all by itself, right? I would need a whole bunch of other mechanisms. And then eventually I started finding these in biology. They just, they just weren't being talked about in most of the, the popular books. Well, so let me tell you a little, little story. I, um, for a reasons I won't go into, because it's a whole nother story. I started doing interviews with scientists and asking them the question, on a scale of one to 10, one being good, 10 being bad, how bad is the politicization, polarization, difficulty of publishing, difficulty of getting grants, uh, the bureaucracy and political correctness? Like how bad is it in your field? And when I talked to physicists and chemists, I got three, four answers like that. I talked to people in cancer and evolutionary biology, I get answers like eight. And one researcher who has done both of those, all of those fields actually, he said, I think I can tell you why. 
he says, theoretical physics is a three. And that's because the foundations of theoretical physics are very well understood. Nobody's arguing too much about that. He said, we still don't know what the foundations of biology are. And we still don't know what the foundations of cancer are. And so these fields develop dogmas that people cling to with certainty. And then if you show up and you have something that's against the zeitgeist, well, good luck getting something through peer review. That's how he described it. Would you say that what you're experiencing, like your own version of that, where you go to these different departments and they're sacred cows and taboos, give me a reaction. Yeah, I think that certainly exists and it's definitely an issue in some, uh, for some things. I think two things need to be said. I want to be clear that I'm not complaining in the sense that, I mean, over my career, we've been well-funded. We publish all the time in mainstream journals. So I, I'm not complaining by any means. I'm not saying okay. I've been uh, unfairly treated by anybody. I'm not, I don't have any ax to grind against uh, the mainstream structures. I'm, you know, I, I've, I, I'm not complaining. Having said that, the reality is that, yes, absolutely, we spend an inordinate amount of time writing and rewriting and massaging things in a way that is designed um, not to freak anybody out, as opposed to just uh, sort of putting things in the way that I think are the most accurate in terms of what I think is going on. Obviously, this isn't for primary data. This is for what do we think it means, right? That kind of stuff. And I think we have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to pitch something to specific audiences. And then part of that is worthwhile. We want our, you know, I, I certainly want my, um, my more junior scientists to think about how things are going to be best absorbed so that they can actually make an impact and not write these things that nobody is ever going to read. So part of that is worthwhile. But for sure, there are problems. And I think that most of these problems arise not because anybody is evil or trying to suppress new knowledge or there's, you know, I, I don't really, um, I've not seen any evidence of any kind of major conspiracies going on. I think most of these things are kind of inescapable limitations of humanity, meaning, you know, everybody's only got so much attention span because the amount of knowledge is doubling, I forget how fast, but all very rapidly. You've only got so much stuff to pay attention to. And so everybody has to kind of make this cut off. Okay, here's this thing that's really weird. Am I going to dig into it now? Or am I just going to sort of wait till it shows up in the textbook where everybody else has vetted and then I'll pay attention. So that that's the sort of thing we face a lot more than, boy, I hate this stuff. I'm going to make sure nobody ever sees it. I've honestly, in my, what, 25 years doing this now, I've not come across much of that um, intentional obfuscation. It's mostly just how do I make this stuff so attractive to people that they have to fit it into their busy day. So, you know, I think there is absolutely an inertia to science. I think there is absolutely a lack of imagination when you've standardized, you know, you have a study section or something like this, and you've sort of averaged everybody's uh, unique gifts. And what, what do you end up with? You end up with kind of, you know, a, a middle ground that's kind of this muddy sort of middle that's not very good at discerning the really brilliant ideas from the kind of crazy stuff. So I think these are limitations that we all have to work to overcome. And I don't think most of it is anybody trying to go down the wrong path. So when you go to a particular group and you sense that you've knocked over one of these sacred cows, then you're not getting hostility. You're just getting what is it? Bewilderment? Is it? Well, it's everything. And I'm not going to say I haven't gotten hostility because I certainly have, especially in um, things like uh, anonymous peer review. I mean, boy, once once you make something and once you give somebody uh, the cloak of anonymity, you know, then they really go go at it. But um, my view on this and what I try to impart to the people in my lab is that it's not personal. I don't think anybody really cares about me in the sense of, boy, we're going to, you know, make sure that this guy doesn't, his stuff doesn't come to light. I don't think anybody's thinking about me in that way. It's not personal. It's here's somebody who's thought about things in a particular way. Can I do a good enough job of getting my point across so that they are motivated to think about things in a different way? Now, that may be impossible for some people, but I found that largely it's quite possible. And this is also why, you know, when, so I have a very limited travel schedule for, you know, work and family reasons. When, when I'm invited by graduate student associations, I always go. 
Because mm. if you think about it, you know, if I give a talk to a large audience of well-funded PIs who have, you know, they're funded for the next 10 years to do exactly what they're doing, how much impact am I really going to have? Who, who's going to change, right? Who's going to change what they do based on anything that I tell them? Whereas the mm. postdocs and the grad students in the audience, their brains are still kind of soft. They're still thinking about what are they going to do in the future? What, what are the big questions? How do they want to think about things? And that's where I think all the impact happens. You know, I frankly think that, that you're much much more likely to impact uh, science going forward by presenting another option to the young people who haven't really crystallized yet. So again, I, I never take this stuff personally, although certainly, you know, this stuff, this stuff happens and sometimes there is hostility, but I think it's on me and I tell my people, it's, it's on us to present this in a way that it's inescapably mm -hmm. compelling. If, if somebody's just not getting it, part of it's on them, but part of it's on you because you have to make your stuff so clear. And I think, in, I think that's probably why in physics there's less of it because in physics, we, in math, I think you have a greater opportunity to make something that's just inescapable. You know, here's what it is and you follow the, and, and you see that I haven't made a mistake between lines one and 10. The conclusion is what it is. And what are you going to say after that? Biology isn't really like that. There's a lot of room for interpretation, but I really think it's on us to make sure that our interpretation of things is so compelling that people have no choice but to listen. And to a large extent, I'm happy with how that's gone. I, I don't really have any, any complaints about it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it also reckon, makes sense to me because I make my living in marketing. And, you know, I think most of what most people think of as science is really marketing. Mm. And you use the word pitch. And that yeah. is the right word. How do I, like, a scientific paper, like it or not, is a sales pitch for a particular way of doing things. And the question is, did you prove that what you're pitching is correct. And I think that's also true in marketing. Like, well, yeah. you know, if it's an infomercial with an exercise machine, did you prove that the exercise machine is really going to make you healthier or are you just going to shove it under your bed and forget about it, right? So That's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. And, and people complain a lot about um, the editors at various journals and how you have to appeal to them. Eh, okay, but the real battle is appealing to the limited time of the community. What you really want is you want eyeballs on your stuff and you want people who are in the position to do something with it and to, to, to move the ball forward. You're competing. It's very much um, that aspect of marketing, not because it's got to be fluff and sort of, um, you know, dressed up in a way that it's not. I don't mean that. I mean, you literally are competing for the limited attention. Of, we all have only 24 hours in our day, right? And the people who are the most effective at getting stuff done, their time is the most limited. So how are you going to get them to read and understand what you're talking about? That's really the battle. Well, this is great. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about, there was a very interesting part in your video, which again, I'll put in the show notes where you said, there are two views of cancer and regeneration. So everybody knows what cancer is, but what regeneration is, is if I cut the leg off of the frog, does it grow back? If the kid smashes his end of his finger in a car door, does the finger grow back? And with young children, they actually do. And you've studied this in great depth. And you said in your video that there are two schools of thought about how regeneration relates to cancer. Could you explain the two views and what you've been doing with this? Sure, sure. Um, the first thing I want to do is uh, enlarge a little bit what we mean by regeneration. So broadly speaking, uh, the point of regeneration is not simply to grow back whatever was lost, but think about the problem that these cells have when something is lost. So let's say you're a salamander and let's say somebody cuts off your arm. One of the things that the cells have to do is that they have to be able to uh, start, I mean, they start growing, they start patterning, they're making this limb. The biggest thing for them to do is two things. Number one, to know what to do to make a limb, okay? And number two, to stop when they're done. And hardly anybody mm. studies this last point because it's super critical. These cells are being called upon uh, collectively to make a decision about a massively large measurable, the, the size and shape of an arm. How, and, and in fact, in some cases, um, this is actually remodeling. And I'll, I'll talk about some frog data where it's not, you're not regrowing it from scratch. You're actually remodeling things in place. You're moving stuff around. So it's a massive computational problem for them to know, hey, what does a standard salamander arm look like? 
and have we reached it and can we stop now to an engineer um, in, you know, or, or a cyberneticist, this is pretty obvious. It's error minimization. So you've got a set point, you know what your target looks like, you take a step and you keep taking those steps, you know, kind of a means sense um, analysis. You keep taking those steps until the error is zero or as small as you're willing to live with. Okay, that all presupposes that you know what the target is that you're trying to reach. And we'll talk about that as, in a minute as well. But the whole point of regeneration is not just regrowing stuff back, it's the ability to exert control over very small things, which are your cells and the pathways inside those cells, to achieve a very large goal state. So for me, the important thing about regeneration is that it's very much a pattern homeostatic process. It is the ability of the system collectively to harness the activity of cells towards a very large scale outcome and an anatomy, a, a, an anatomical state. So we see this in regulative development where let's say you can take uh, mammalian embryos, cut them in half and you still get two perfectly normal monozygotic twins or in regeneration. There, these are all instances of the same thing. They're the ability of cells to work together towards a global goal. Okay, so now we can talk about how this relates to cancer. So there are um, two basic uh, views on cancer speaking very kind of roughly, the more popular modern view, although it's, I think the cracks are now pretty, pretty deep in it, but the more modern view is that what happens in cancer is that you basically have a series of mutations that are, have irrevocably damaged a cell to the point where the typical growth controls are off. So now this thing is going to grow out of control. It will have clonal progeny, which will make a tumor. They'll metastasize, blah, blah, blah. So that view makes a very specific prediction. If you believe that that's what cancer is, then what it suggests is that animals which have very ready access to large numbers of proliferative cells, of plastic cells that don't know what they should be yet, should be very cancer prone because this view is at the cellular level. It's a view that's focused on checkpoints from yeast and uh, you know uh, cell cycle control proteins and things like this that focus on the individual cell and talk about what happens when you have cells that are actually pretty comfortable proliferating like crazy, like you would have to have in a regenerative, you know, in a highly regenerative animal to get a whole limb back. I mean, the, the rate of proliferation is incredible. It's faster than any tumor. And so, mm. so the prediction would be that animals that are good regenerators would have huge uh, cancer loads because you have all these cells around that are really ready to proliferate and they're plastic. They can be different types of cells. And so that would be the, the, the prediction that you would make. That prediction is incorrect. So it turns out that animals that are good regenerators have in fact the lowest rates of cancer and to the point where there's even uh, older data where you can induce tumors on let's say the limb of a salamander cut through the middle of the tumor and the regenerative process and this has been done in salamanders it's been done in, in planaria it's been done in um uh, more recently in the 80s uh, by uh, in 90s by Mary Hendricks in, in, in uh, chicken and in fish embryos, there are these highly uh, regenerative environments actually normalize cancer. They normalize the behavior. And you think, why would that what be? Do, what do you mean normalize? What I mean normalize is that they become, and, and we've done this in our, um, in our lab electrically as well that we can talk about, they, instead of killing the cells, they convert them to normal behavior where they participate in morphogenesis with the rest of the tissue. Oh. This was originally found... Um, a long time ago, um, uh, Beatrice Mintz showed this in the late 70s. You can inject human carcinoma cells into a mouse embryo and they become part of a normal mouse. So why would that be? So the second view of cancer is completely different. The second view of cancer is more top-down, whereas the first one is bottom-up. And the top-down view says, look, what you have, is, the, the real question isn't why is there cancer? The question is, why is there ever anything but cancer? I mean, we have this profound mm. question of how do you take very competent individual cells, which are normally, you know, they're amoebas, they're crawling around doing interesting things. You now have to convince them to work together to build and repair a giant thing. Their goal is now huge, as opposed to the boundary that they normally care about, which is just the boundary of a single cell. So normally their self, okay, and so I'm going to use this weird concept that, you know, kind of drives a lot of people crazy. But if you think about what is the scale of the self of a single cell, it's basically the boundary of the cell. And all of its goals are constrained within that boundary. What all it cares about is dividing, proliferating, going somewhere where life is good, and this is you know meta metastasis, whatever. The question is, how do you get those cells to work together towards a much larger goal, like make a body or make a limb or an organ? So what? So what? What? So the other view is that animals that have a very good, powerful control structure that is able to harness cells towards these large-scale purposes are cancer-resistant because when a single cell is uh, sort of teetering on this possibility of, hey, I'm going to... Um, 
uh, contract my scale of self to just uh, handle my local problem and I'm going to crawl around and treat the rest of the, uh, the body as just environment, they have powerful cues that are constantly operating in morphostasis. They're constantly operating to keep everybody working towards a bigger goal. It's a motivational issue, so to speak. It's a way to keep all of the cells engaged in this process of anatomical homeostasis where what they're trying to achieve is not a single cell goal, like make as many copies of myself as I can, but they're actually working on a much larger goal, a morphogenetic goal of making a limb or you know whatever. And then we can talk about, I mean, it sounds very um, sort of anthropomorphic, but there's actually some very obvious uh, rigorous biophysical models of how this works. So this other idea is that, yeah, regenerative, uh, regenerative environments normalize cancer because they prevent cells from going uh, off on their own and they keep them harnessed towards this large-scale morphogenetic plan. And so this is much more consistent with the data. And in fact, this is why as far back as the 80s, people knew that one of the first steps towards uh, tumorigenic transformation is the loss of uh, what's called gap junctional connectivity. So what I mean by that is there are these little electrical synapses. They're sort of an ancient version of our modern neural synapses that allow two cells to directly share with each other their electrical and physiological state. You can think of them as, as almost um, submarine hatches that sort of dock together like this. They allow two cells to come together and to dock so that small molecules from one cell can go directly in the other. And, and they're very clever. They can open and close and, and so on. The first thing that happens when these things are shut off is that the cell is now no longer perceiving the electrical signals from the network. The cell is now an individual and as far as it's concerned, its computational boundary has shrunk to the point where it no longer feels all of the instructions that are happening around it from these other cells but it begins to treat them as environment. The boundary between self and world shrinks, right? And so now that cell can go crazy and proliferate and do all these different things. And so what we've shown, and now other people have shown, is that this makes some very specific predictions that we've tested. So for example, when you take cells, uh, perfectly genetically, perfectly normal cells, uh, no carcinogens, no oncogenes, nothing like that, perfectly normal animals, and you artificially manipulate, in fact, block this normal electrical coordination between the cells, you trigger cancer and we can make a metastatic melanoma in perfectly wild type, uh, let's say Xenopus tadpoles, purely by deranging the ability of these cells to talk to each other electrically. There's nothing genetically wrong with them. Even better, what you can do is you can take human oncogenes, throw them into these tadpoles, which normally cause tumors. If you do that, but at the same time, you force the appropriate electrical communication between the cells, you keep them plugged into this large network that makes decisions about, hey, what are we making? We're not making a tumor, we're making an arm or a kidney or whatever. If you force this electrical uh, connection, then despite the really strong presence of the oncogene, and we're talking KRAS and things like this, you will not get a tumor and you will get normal cells that participate in normal morphogenetic functions. Now, I'm not saying that this cures every possible kind of cancer. I'm saying cancer is not one thing. There are many different uh, phenomena here, but there's a really important sense in which Cancer is not a single cell disease. It is a disease of communication. It's a disease of boundary between self and world and not letting that boundary shrink to the level of a single cell, but keeping it at the network level, keeping it at the tissue or organ level. So cancer is a distortion of the cellular sense of self. I think that's very true. Now, I'm not going to claim that there's only one correct view of cancer, okay? So, so there yeah. are other people, right? There's other people that have useful um, paradigms involving, uh, uh, you know, game theory and various other ways of looking at cancer. I'm sure some of those are, are useful lenses through which to see this problem. Yeah. What we work on now is exactly this boundary of the self. And so I see evolutionarily, I see the rise of multicellularity as the expansion of the self from a single cell level to a large collective that has goals befitting a large collective collective, so scaled in space and time. So morphogenesis, um, pattern memory and anticipation and so on. And then cancer is a perhaps temporary reduction of that inflation back down. And I think the sense of self is dynamic. So it can, it can grow and shrink during the lifetime of an individual at any level. So cells, tissues, and so on. And managing this is an important strategy going forward for biomedicine. So you sent me a couple months ago, a bunch of papers you'd written and one of them was in a some kind of a psychology journal and it was about biological sense of self it was yeah something Frontier. along that Frontier. line frontiers and, in psychology or something like that yeah 
And in that paper, you talked about how you are willingly anthropomorphizing biological behavior. You're comparing it to humans. And you pointed out that, you know, there's also the excessive prohibition of anthropomorphisms. And traditionally in molecular biology, these kinds of anthropomorphisms have been very, very frowned upon. And my sense is that you can't make sense of this unless you invoke these kind of analogies. And in fact, I can't help but think of, you know, even viruses, hot topic lately, are also changing the identity of cells too, that maybe you could even um, frame the virus problem in a similar light. Do you have any comments to make about that? So um, I I don't have any wisdom on viruses specifically, but I want to talk about this anthropomorphic uh, thing. It's a very interesting phenomenon. So as of course you're right, uh, molecular biologists uh, hate that kind of stuff. And What's interesting about it is that on the one hand, the at least in theory, what they're trying to do is avoid any kind of uh, non-rigorous, uh, you know, sort of uh, woolly thinking. But in reality, by calling it anthropomorphic, so the root there is, you know, is human, right? That's what you're going for. You're really breaking with a modern understanding of evolution because these things that we're talking about, so memory, goal-directedness, learning, perception, all of these things, they didn't just show up in humans. I mean, it's a completely, <laughs> it's completely magical thinking. I'm constantly just amazed at how people will say, you're telling me that, that this tissue can have memory? No, 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 we have memory. I say, what do you think you are, magic? I mean, you don't have anything that hasn't been around evolutionarily for probably a billion years. And so we need to now take very seriously the fact that all of the things that we think about as higher animal kinds of cognition, they have an evolutionary history. They don't just show up suddenly because we're humans and we're cool. This stuff has been around forever. And all of the molecular biology is catching up now because now we know that our unicellular ancestors had all of the same, just from all the genomics, we now know our unicellular ancestors had all of the synaptic machinery we associate now with complex neurons. All of this stuff, you, you think biology wasn't doing learning and anticipation before until humans came along? I mean, it's crazy. It's magical thinking. And I always, you know, when I talk to people about this and they, and they say, how dare you, you know, use these words um, like memory and learning on, in, for tissue. I mean, we have, a, we have you know, we, we, we work on skin learning and things like this. And they say, oh, that's, you know, that's crazy talk. And I say, well, show me the magic that you think, you, you, you think applies this to humans only. So I think, I think the most important thing is for everybody to take evolution very seriously and realize that all of the cognitive types of capacities that we talk about have a phylogenetic history. They were here in simple forms. Obviously, I'm not telling you that, you know, bacteria are quietly writing, uh, you know, uh, uh, essays when, when you're not watching. What I'm saying is that all of the things that we associate with higher cognition have basal analogs that have been slowly um, sort of ramped up during evolution, but they've been here since the time of bacterial biofilms. So this kind of essentialist um, binary thinking that there's real cognition, which is what humans may be the great apes do. And then there's everything else, which, ah, you know, people talk about that as cognition, but that's not really, con- that should have been gone from, you know, shortly after Darwin like that, that is no longer, that's a view that's no longer tenable. It's not, you, you can't maintain that seriously anymore. And so it's completely uh, reasonable to use computational models of things like decision-making, memory, anticipation, self-models, world models, all of that stuff, to use it to try to explain decision-making during, for example, regeneration. You know, how does a regenerating collective make decisions? So people say, well, only, only brains make decisions. Well, for example, we had a meeting uh, a while back, a basal cognition meeting, and somebody wanted to talk about the origin of neurons. So he kind of got up and he put down, he wrote down four, ca- uh, four um, characteristics of neurons. And I immediately said, well, every cell in the body does this. And so then we had two hour dis- a two-hour discussion of what exactly is a neuron. And guess what we found out is that there are some specializations, like the special shape and the speed with which it acts, but all of the things neural networks do cell networks have been doing long before neurons and brains showed up. Um, Bacterial biofilms do this. There's some very nice recent work on that. So my point, um, I I often start these talks with a continuum slide with a bunch of different types of uh, cognitive properties on it, starting with the very simple things that even bacteria can do and going all the way up. And so 
I think that there's no such thing as really anthropomorphizing. There's only one, and this actually, this is, this is a good point. It gets back to your point about the engineering. I don't think that any of these things can be handled at the level of philosophy where somebody says, I fundamentally don't believe in using anthropomorphic concepts below the higher mammals. And somebody else says, well, I do. Okay, that's great. And that's all philosophy. It gets us nowhere. What I think we need is a very clear engineering approach. The thing is very simple. Here's a model of memory and learning that I'm going to apply to a bunch of skin cells. Now, all we're going to do is we're going to find out, does that model get us to better experiments and better control in a regenerative medicine setting or doesn't it? If after some mm. number of years of working with this, we've gotten nowhere, then I will gladly say, okay, guess what? Uh, this was an inappropriate uh, metaphor. It's gotten us nowhere. And that's that. On the other hand, if it gets us to better understanding and control of what's going on, then you have to say, no, it was a good metaphor. It was exactly appropriate. And it helped us get to new science and new capability. So I take a very pragmatic approach, but it's sort of akin to Dennett's intentional stance, where he says, you know, it makes sense to treat an agent as cognitive when that gives you the most ability to understand what the thing is about to do. And that's exactly what we're after. And I think um, regenerative medicine folks take to this pretty well, because in the end, they want an outcome. And if I tell them that we can get better regeneration by motivating a, a cellular collective with rewards and punishments, they say, fine, let's do whatever you got to do. Let's get that finger growing back. Whereas people who really are committed to a bottom-up perspective are against this kind of idea on fundamental grounds, which to me is, is, you know, is nowhere. We need to be engineers about these things. So if I take your engineering modeling approach and I said, well, I have a hypothesis that not only does cognition happen in cells, but bacteria are better programmers than humans and maybe my stomach has better memory than my brain because I just had a senior moment yesterday because I couldn't think of somebody's name. Like, would your research actually support that at the lowest levels of biology, there's actually more intelligence than there is uh, in a room full of PhDs? Well, it's a hard thing because intelligence, well, a couple of things. I mean, intelligence, I think, and, and certainly I don't have a unique uh, definition of it that hasn't been said by other people before, but most likely intelligence is not a scalar, right? It's not a single number. So when we say more intelligence or less intelligence, you know, anybody that's owned a parrot and a dog can tell you that they're both highly intelligent in completely different ways. So trying to say which one is more intelligent than the other is a tough, is a tough task. I mean, <clears throat> if you're thinking about... Um, Intelligence as uh, efficient problem solving, adaptability to novel environments, transference of lessons learned to new cases. I mean, bacterial populations, maybe not individual bacteria, but bacterial populations are certainly pretty dang good at it. And there are, um, there are lots of people in the basal cognition field that are studying this. You know, I think certainly, certainly uh, higher, uh, so-called higher animals, including humans, have some unique cognitive capacities that don't exist at these lower levels. But I think comparing them is not trivial. And I think we have to be ready to understand how to motivate your system in, by taking seriously the fact that it might be a cognitive agent. I mean, this is another, you know, this is something I, I for undergrads, when I first kind of introduced this whole idea, I say, look, you got a rat and you want this rat to do a circus trick. It's going to put a little ball in the little hoop, right? You got two fundamental approaches. You can try to control every single neuron in the rat's brain and play the thing like a puppet and try to get it to do what you want it to do. And someday, maybe that'll be possible. It's absolutely not possible now, but someday maybe that's possible. You can do something else, which is you can train the rat. And the reason that that works perfectly well is because you've now offloaded that whole complexity onto the animal. You're not worried about how it's going to do it. It's a top-down approach. You are providing a positive and negative uh, reinforcement so that the system itself figures out how to do it. And guess what? It'll do the trick. And if you're trying to control it neuron by neuron, the sun will burn out before you get anywhere with that thing. So the reason that it's so much more effective, why is it so much more effective? It's because you have taken seriously the fact that your subject is a cognitive system that has goals. Its goal is to get more treats and less punishment, and it will do what it needs to do to, uh, to get a on. So some systems are very amenable to this kind of thing. The rat, obviously, if you're dealing with a cuckoo clock, that's a terrible strategy because that system is not amenable to that strategy. So our goal as scientists, not philosophers, but scientists, is to not make blanket um, sort of uh, declarations about what is and is not appropriate, but actually 
to ask the simple question, what kind of strategy is best for your system? And then we find out. And so this is a completely an empirical question. It is not anything to sort of philosophize about, but people do have very strong preconceptions about what they think is right or wrong, but I think it only gets resolved at the bench. So last question and we'll wrap up. I talked to you a month or two ago and I asked you a question. I said, what would you think of uh, somebody who said, I think we need to make significant revisions to our evolutionary theories in order to really make sense of what all we know right now. And I could hear the emotion in your voice change and I couldn't tell if you were not liking what I was saying or liking, but then in about 30 seconds, I could tell that you agreed. Could you just mention a few things that you feel like we need to leave behind and some things that we need to embrace from an evolution perspective in order to reckon with the things that are in front of us right now. Right. I could say a couple of things. Um, I guess the first thing that I want to say is to be super clear that some of the changes that uh, people have proposed to this whole thing that come from um, a sincere wish that there was uh, somebody uh, sort of uh, orchestrating the whole thing from the beyond, this is not what I have in mind. Okay, so I'm absolutely committed to a naturalistic understanding of biology and physics. And I'm not um, saying that we got to throw this whole thing out and go with some sort of design hypothesis. That is absolutely not what I'm going for. At the same time, I think we absolutely have to acknowledge some important aspects of this that are that have currently been completely neglected. So a lot of what goes on addresses the in developmental evolutionary biology addresses the hardware of the body in the sense that people are very interested in the evolution of the proteins, the uh, control structure of gene expression and all of those things. So, so absolutely critical. All that work is great. It stands. We need it. What's still missing, however, is the true understanding of the software that that hardware enables. There is amazing plasticity in that hardware. And I actually think regeneration is not about repairing yourself after injury. I think regeneration is for evolvability. And what I mean Mm. by that, so the damage that regeneration is initially meant to fix is mutagenic damage, not uh, traumatic injury. So think about the following example. Um, Two examples I'll, I'll just throw out there. One is uh, that's been known for a long time, which is that if you, for example, have a, a developing vertebrate limb and you produce an extra bone, you don't just get a loose bone sitting there. In fact, you get an extra finger. So the other components, they know what to do when they see bone, the tendons, the neurons, the blood vessels, right? You get a, So what this means is that because the system, and it's not regeneration in the classic sense, but it is in the sense that I mentioned, which is pattern homeostasis. All of the pieces are trying to make order at a particular level, at the level of a finger, out of whatever is going on. So this means that if there's some error or a mutation or something else that um, is going to screw up the system, all the stuff around it helps out. It helps to try to still make it a coherent organism. This means that it greatly flattens the evolutionary landscape, the fitness landscape, because now, I mean, one of the biggest problems with evolution, when you first tell somebody this, who, who doesn't know about it, the, the theory of evolution, the first thing they say is, wait a minute, random changes in a complex system always make things worse. They hardly ever make things better. How is this whole thing supposed to work, right? That's the typical thing that everybody gets caught up on. So my Mm -hmm. point is that because the individual pieces are goal-directed, meaning not in a magical way, in a cybernetic way, meaning that it's, again, shaped by evolution, all the pieces are trying to reduce error from a specific uh, homeostatic loop, these mutations that otherwise would have been deleterious and would have screwed up the system are now tolerable because everything around it still helps out. Um, I'll give you another simple example. We discovered, so, so tadpoles, when they become frogs, they have to rearrange their face during, morph- during metamorphosis. They have to move their eyes forward and their, you know, their jaws come out. All this stuff has to happen. So it used to be thought that this was encoded by the, somehow by the genome in a rote, hardwired way. So if all tadpoles start out in a particular configuration, all frogs look the same, well, then you just move all the different organs a particular way, and then you get your frog. So what we did was we made Picasso tadpoles. We made tadpoles where everything is in the wrong place. So the eyes are back here, the, you know, the mouth is over here, the, yeah, everything's messed up. Well, guess what? When you do that, all of the different organs move around in really weird and unnatural paths, until they get to a pretty normal frog face and then they stop. So what you find out is that what evolution has done here is not created a hardwired system that just does a particular thing. 
and there may be animals that are like that. Maybe C. elegans is like that. I don't know the nematode. But what it's done here is produce a system that's much better than that. It's able to dynamically try to reduce the error between whatever's going on now and the target morphology that this thing is, has been evolutionarily selected for to have a proper frog face. So I think that capability is what makes evolution go, broadly speaking. It's what enables all of these mutations to be at worst neutral and at best um, uh, helpful when otherwise they would have been deleterious. I think it greatly smooths out the evolutionary landscape because these things are trying to achieve specific ends. And so this is, this is I mean, lo, lo, talk about things that get people all crazy, talking about um, any kind of goal-directedness really drives people nuts. But I think it's very important to point out that while biologists are still sort of terrified of teleology and you know animism and all these kinds of things, engineers got over this in the 40s. So we've had right, we've had we've had control theory and cybernetics since the 40s and 50s, and everybody and on that side of the aisle is super comfortable talking about. Uh, non-magical artifacts that have goals and can pursue them. And, you know, this is like robotics and cybernetics has been all over this. And biology, that it really needs to catch up from that perspective is to get over the fear of goal directedness as long as it's cashed out by specific experimental work. So it's not mystery. It's not magic. It's not any kind of, you know, ghost from above trying to say what the goal is. It is a, a goal directed mechanism in the cybernetic sense. These are not magic. We have them in our house. They're, you know, the thermostats and such. It's time to expand the notion of homeostasis from single variables like temperature, pH, whatnot, to very large scale things like shape and anatomy. And I think this is a critical part that needs to be added to the modern synthesis. We've done some work on it um, showing actually how to rewrite some of these goal states. That's actually, I think, some of the most important work from our lab, because making the hypothesis that these goal states exist, you ought to be able to rewrite them. If they exist, you should be able to go change the goal. And we've done that. And the cells then don't know any better, and they build to the new pattern. And this is some of our work on persistently two-headed planaria and things like this. So I think all of the existing work on evolution is super valuable. It's great. And it needs to be added to this more cybernetic perspective, where there is a multi-scale goal directedness. I mean, the people, there have been now some nice papers on uh, molecular networks that learn and have memory and have homeostasis. Um, obviously, cells do. Now, we've been working on tissues and organs. This pervades biology, this multi-scale. And I've tried to push this idea to our um, roboticist colleagues, and they love it. We're making, there may, people are making robots now based on this principle. But we in biology, have our, we already have such robots, and it's us. And we need to really... Um, add that sort of paradigm to the, the standard understanding of things. I agreed. Michael, this has been fabulous. If somebody's geeked out by what they're reading, uh, what website should they visit or what should they go look at um, yeah, that you um, would like them to start? There are a couple of uh, websites uh, of mine that uh, have uh, everything and more that uh, you might ever want to look at about these things. Um, one is uh, drmichaellevin.org, one word drmike11.org, and the other one is our Allen Center uh, website, which is allencenter.tufts.edu, and hopefully we can put um, uh, links to them on your show notes. We will do that. Uh, Michael, this has been fabulous. I love your willingness to run into these dark matter areas, and uh, I'm expecting to meet you in person later in the fall. And Awesome. And thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, great discussion. Thank you so much. Be well. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0